Another CEO is out, and we've got a preview of big tech earnings. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill, and I'm joined by Motley Fool senior analyst Jason Moser. Joining me here in studio, by the way. Good to see you. Hey, it's always nice to be in studio. You can add Chris Scherzinger to the list of CEOs heading for the exits. Scherzinger has been the CEO of Weber Grill for the past four years. He is out. Chief Technology Officer Alan Matula is going to be the interim CEO at Weber Grill. And you never like to see anyone lose their job, but my first thought when this news broke, Jason, was, oh, this is one of those things we talked about earlier this year. Expect to see more boards of directors, keeping a shorter leash on their management teams. And in the case of uh, Scherzinger, you look at the stock performance of Weber Grill. Um, I'm not putting it all on him. It sounds like they're not either. <laughs> but um, but a change had to be made here. Yeah, I, I mean, it, you know, it, 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 it happens, right? I mean, it, at least it's not Traeger. And I say this is a very happy Traeger grill owner, right? I have the Traeger smoker. I don't own Traeger stock. But Traeger shares are down 72, uh, 73% for the year, uh, whereas Weber down, down about 50% for the year. So it could be worse. But the bigger problem, I think, is that when I say it could be worse, that really means actually, Chris, it is going to get worse. If you look at the way the business has been performing, uh, clearly, it's run to a lot of headwinds. Uh, I mean, it's a very difficult economic climate for, for virtually anyone trying to sell anything, much less a, a typically fairly expensive household item like a grill uh, or a smoker or whatever you might be buying from Weber. If you look at the guidance that they have gotten out there, just this quarter ending in June, they're pegging sales between $525 and $530 million. Now, that's down from $668 million a year ago. I think that you look at these companies, Weber, Traeger, these are, these are again, sort of companies that played into that stay-at-home stock mania that we've witnessed over the past couple of years as we were spending more time at home, cooking at home, and I think a lot of people sort of upgraded. That's great. I understand it. But, you know, these are these are not purchases that you make very frequently, too, right? I don't necessarily put all the fault here on the CEO. It's a very difficult business to run, this kind of a business. It's a large ticket purchase. And then you're probably not really going out and buying another grill for several years, hopefully. Um, they make these grills really well now. They're very durable. They can last a long, long time. So they've got to figure out a way to, to go beyond just the grill, right? And they're selling things like wood pellets or charcoal or even potential food plans, recipe ideas, and whatnot. That, that really hasn't proven out yet, right? You still need to see over some time whether that actually can develop. And it doesn't look like the rest of the year is especially optimistic, right? I mean, they've, I think they've suspended guidance for the full year, fiscal 2022, basically due to uncertainty. Now, they're not the first ones to do that. But like I said on Twitter, I mean, maybe Scherzinger just felt like he was just sick of getting grilled on the calls, right? <laughs> hey, oh! Seriously, though, I mean, it's a very difficult job. I don't know that he. I feel like he probably walks out of a job like this with some 
some financial certainty, maybe he's kind of just happy to be done done with it. It's possible. I mean, the stock is at one point was down about twenty percent this morning. It's it's bounced back a little bit from that. But as you said, it's it's down about fifty percent for the year. Yeah. Um, I understand anyone who looks at shares, how much they've pulled back from when it went public less than a year ago, and thinks, "Ooh, well, maybe this." Is I I would just point you to the comments from uh, the board member. Uh, who came out as part of this announcement and made it very clear, like, look, this is um, this is not going to get solved quickly. This is a brand uh, with some equity in it. There is a, a version of the future where things turn around. But I think, I think if you're looking at Weber Grill uh, and it's on your watch list, I think you got to wait and see who the next CEO is. You got to see who who are they bringing in, and does he or she. Um, have a plan that resonates with you, maybe then buy a couple of shares of this stock. But right now, everything about this situation to me says stay away. Yeah, I fully agree. And I mean, I, I, I say that just again from the perspective of the actual business model itself. I mean, it, Weber is a, I, I think you're right. They've got tremendous brand equity, they make great products, right? They have a status in this market. It just is kind of one of those things where. It, and we've seen this before, right? It, good product doesn't always translate into good investment, right? It's the nature of the product, and you have to take that in consideration as to how a business monetizes that. And it's not to say there aren't ways for them to be able to to come up with some more meaningful and recurring monetization down the line, but that is going to be dependent on on leadership that that takes this role. And and there's a lot we just don't know yet. And it, this is a, this is a corner that is very difficult to see around. And so they're they're going to have to be very, I think, deliberate in the talent that they bring in here because you got to be able to paint that picture going forward of how you take this business to the next level. Because again, great product that doesn't always translate into a good investment. We're in earnings season, and you never want to focus too much on any one earnings report for a business. We're long-term investors, uh, so we try not to get hung up on a single earnings report, or for that matter, uh, a single earnings season. Having said that, this seems like a pretty consequential week <laughs> for this particular earnings season, because we're going to get reports from Apple and Amazon and Meta Platforms, Shopify, among others. How are you feeling? What, what if any, expectations do you have about this week? There is a, a, a level of trepidation that I'm feeling personally, and I'm seeing, I take comfort in the fact that I see it in others, sort of walking gingerly into this earnings season. As Matt Argersinger said on the radio show last week, it's just sort of like, okay, so we're, we're, we just don't want to disappoint. Like, just, just don't disappoint us too much, <laughs> and, and we'll bid your stock up. It, it sort of feels that way, although, with look, some companies are just more important than others by yeah. virtue of their size, and that's why I'm feeling a little bit of trepidation, particularly in the case of you know the big three: Apple, Amazon, and Meta platforms. Yeah, I mean it, it is obviously a very big quarter here, and it, it did seem like last quarter, no matter what a company reported, the market just wasn't having any of it, um, and, and it's obviously been a very difficult year for investors. Uh, but but yeah, I mean you're looking at what you got Google tomorrow on Tuesday, you got Meta on Wednesday, you got Amazon on Thursday. I think we're going to get an interesting look into the advertising market with all three of those businesses actually. And you know, starting with Google, 
I mean, you look at Google revenue last year in the quarter they're getting ready to announce, uh, $61.8 billion. Estimates this quarter just just a tad under $70 billion. So, there's still projection there that the company will be growing. Now, it remains to be seen whether they hit that or not. But I, th- I think it's more... I think it's more noteworthy what Meta's going through right now, and and this is you know this is a company that has really pivoted in its in its direction, and 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 I don't know that it's necessarily going to work out. I mean, it, it, the metaverse is still something that really is is not fully understandable by a lot of people, and exactly how they're going to be able to monetize it. Is it something that the masses are going to buy into? I mean, and, and what I think is really fascinating, you look at Meta. Um, in, in Q2 a year ago, they recorded revenue just just north of 29 billion dollars. The business is actually forecasted to contract this quarter, so it's actually going to shrink. Now, it, it, they may surprise to the upside there, but the point remains: this is a business that's in transition, and growth has has stalled, of course. And I think part of that has to do with this this conscious transition that they're making, right? This pivot into this this metaverse idea, uh, but it's also a very competitive industry, right? We saw Snap last week re- report a quarter with with I mean the market was just just having none of it, right? Growth slows down to thirteen percent, guidance suspended. They can't see what's coming down the pike here. You know, I mean, I I look at this market, I look at something like a Google versus a Meta. In in Snap and whatever else TikTok. I mean, to me, you know, I, I just I like to say that you know, social is fleeting, but search is forever, and I think that really holds true. I mean, social faces these ongoing competitive pressures of people flocking to the next social platform. Right today, it's TikTok. People are losing interest in Facebook. They're using Instagram more, but now they're losing interest in Instagram, and they're flocking to TikTok. Something's going to come after TikTok. I don't know what it is. I mean, but it's going to be something, and and um, so it remains to be seen there. Now, now I think with search and and what Google's doing, search is far more resilient because it's so much more essential, right? We just need search. In in what necessarily disrupts search, I'm just not so sure, right? I mean, I don't know that that's necessarily as as easy a hurdle to clear. So I, I like a business in this environment like Google far more than something like a Meta for. For all of those reasons, right there, and then Amazon, of course, building out its advertising business as well, which I think is operating on a thirty-plus billion-dollar run rate now, which is pretty fascinating. I mean, that—that's just the business with so many different moving parts and ways to make money, and now you're seeing that this is a nice little ad business that they built there. But to me, it's going to be just fascinating, given given the sentiment in mobile advertising market right now. It is obviously as as low as it could be. I feel like maybe it's a little too low. I look at a business like Google in this environment. And I think when you get a business like that trading south of a twenty earnings multiple, man, that just it just seems like that's a very short sighted take on a business like that. It's going to be interesting to hear the Amazon call when you think about questions around Prime Day, the recent acquisition of of One Health. Uh, it seems like, in terms of clues to the future. That that to me is the call that I'm I'm the most curious to see the results of. It definitely feels like you know more of what you're getting with a Meta and a Google versus an Amazon that is continually dipping its toe in all of these different waters and trying new things out. Whether it's retail, cloud, healthcare, grocery, I mean, just a million different ways for that business to go. And um, I think they're they're still really trying to figure out how to piece those puzzle those those uh, puzzle pieces together. Is there a place where I can place a bet 
on the use of the word only <laughs> in re, in re, as it relates to Apple's earnings. I'm I, I, I'm just I'm just imagining it's just like, well they only earned the revenue was only like they it's such a big company they put up such huge numbers quarter after quarter and I feel like this is one of those quarters where the word only is going to get applied to some sum of money that is tens of billions of dollars. I tell you, Chris, the big focus out there on sports betting, man, you cannot let earning season betting slip under the radar, because it just becomes more and more entertaining every quarter. Jason Moser, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Mark Zuckerberg is raising expectations and hoping some of his employees self-select out of the company. One burnout expert sounds the alarm on meta platforms and discusses a tech company that's nailing the hybrid transition. Ricky Mulvey has more. Feeling burned out? Well, that's not only a problem for you, but some of the companies you own as well. Joining us now is Jennifer Moss. She's the author of the book, The Burnout Epidemic, and a Harvard Business Review contributor. Welcome, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. In a recent Harvard Business Review article, you you wrote, quote, that uh, 54% of workers left a previous job because their boss wasn't empathetic to their struggles at work. Uh, and 49% said employers were unsympathetic to their personal lives. This business-as-usual mentality caused a ripple effect that some experts believe may have contributed to the Great Resignation, end quote. How are you seeing the social contract with work, or how has it changed over the course of the pandemic, and how is it continuing to change, in your view? This has been an evolving topic of interest. You know, for me, I've been writing for HBR on the topic of burnout, researching it pre-pandemic, started writing the book before the pandemic. Um, and so there was a lot to be discussed. But what happens in these types of crises is it tends to exacerbate issues that are just kind of boiling up, right? And so what we used to see, and this would be a few decades ago, was that, you know, and this is pre-technology, technology played a big role in creating this sort of always on culture of work. So employers were asking more of employees uh, to be working inside of work hours, but at home. And so this sort of kind of slow trickle down of work being, you know, consumed uh, 24 hours a day, this integration of life made it so that employees said, well, if you're going to ask me, you know, to, to work at home and to integrate my whole life into work, well, I expect different things of you. And what happened in the pandemic was that employers just felt like this is business as usual. They had the same demands, even higher demands. There was still growth expectations. And as soon as we saw that one metric, that productivity was the same during COVID working remote, it was like, oh, you know, this big sort of false metric measure, whereas people were working three more hours a day or 30% more of their day to hit those pre-COVID goals. And so what's happening now is employees are saying, you know what? I'm not going to face my mortality for the next, you know, for the last two years for a job that doesn't care at all about my mental health and well-being. And I am done. And it used to be that life was transactional between and your relationship was transactional between employers and employees, but that's no longer the case. If employers are going to demand so much for their employees and to have them integrate their work and life so much, then there has to be more concern about how that's impacting their life overall. 
flexibility can be a double-edged sword, and workload seems to be almost a larger key than just hours uh, hours at the desk. One company that seemed to learn some lessons about workload for their employees was the company Okta, cybersecurity firm. You spoke with the CEO, Todd McKinnon. Uh, what did he learn about workload during the pandemic for employees, and what were some of your takeaways for other companies? You know, I love that conversation with him because he was really demonstrating empathy. He got it and he was measuring, he was gathering data and looking at the data because so often we see our high performers going above and beyond. And we think that that's a really great thing to celebrate, but we're not checking in to see, are they still working at midnight every night? Are they working on weekends? You know, um, they might um, seem to express a desire and a love and a passion for their job, but they're still at high risk of burning out. And so what Todd did was he was just, you know, analyzing when he gave people time off on Friday. So it was supposed to be sort of this meaningless Fridays or, or, or a little break where it was like a day off on Friday. He saw that when he did that, his employees would just come back in and work on Saturdays and Sundays to finish the, the project, you know? So what he came to understand is that it isn't about giving people these Fridays off or even just, you know, the big, big kind of headlines of lots of organizations. You know, we gave a week off to our burned out employees. I mean, that's just such a band-aid solution. That's giving ice cream to people that need water. And what Todd is saying is that we need to be upstream. We need to recognize that workload is not sustainable. So how do I reduce work? workload so that I can give someone a Friday off and they don't need to compensate for that Friday off by working on Saturday and Sunday. And that is really that switch. You know, there's perks and there's optimization for people. Then that's about 20% of our global workforce that really does benefit from that. But 80% of our global workforce needs to have more upstream interventions so that they can then actually enjoy a lot of what employers are spending their money on, which is those optimization perks, sort of downstream tactics. Not every upstream intervention is helping their employees work less. Putting that in opposition, you've now got Mark Zuckerberg at Meta Platforms writing in an internal memo, quote, part of my hope by raising expectations and having more aggressive goals and just kind of turning up the heat a little bit is that I think some of you might decide that this place isn't for you and that self-selection is okay with me, end quote. I'd say Sundar Pichai, CEO of Alphabet, said something similar-ish in an email to Googlers saying, quote, Moving forward, we need to be more entrepreneurial, working with greater urgency, sharper focus, and more hunger than what we've shown on sunnier days. In some cases, that means consolidating where investments overlap and streamlining the process. In other cases, that means pausing development and redeploying resources to higher priority areas. I'll end the quote there. What goes through your mind when you're hearing these statements from, in some cases, beaten down tech companies, essentially cracking the whip on employees saying, we need to work harder now in this remote-first hybrid environment? Well, it's frustrating for me as someone who has been sounding the alarm on burnout for a long time. And, you know, and I, I get that there is a fear that we're going to have some sort of malaise or people are going to ask too much. You know, we've already defined burnout for a long time as this whiny millennial problem. They're just complaining about work-life balance, which has been so disingenuous and unhelpful. When you actually look at you know, the definition of burnout, it's institutional stress left unmanaged. And it's showing up in signs like high levels of depletion and exhaustion. You know, we're seeing people feeling like they have no value 
at work. They're feeling disconnected from their job. They feel like they're no good at what they do anymore. They're uninspired. And they feel this high level of cynicism, which, which then cynicism breeds into our, you know, our communities where we don't see people in that same sort of level of optimism and hopefulness. And that is a very dangerous thing. And there's catastrophic impacts to burnout. It can lead to PTSD. It can lead to, you know, it can lead to chronic illness and anxiety and depression and even suicide. So it's not that we can just turn around and say, oh, that thing didn't happen. Let's ignore it. There's a massive hangover for people right now. They have been dealing in this kind of macro stress surge capacity level. They're experiencing all these different impacts from that. And what we're going to see is, yeah, you're going to see people leave. But I think what we're also going to see is some sort of revolt. And I am seeing that when you look at how many people are actually leaving jobs and not going into jobs at like, we talk about this great reshuffling, people are actually leaving and they're taking time off. We're also seeing the highest level of mental health disability claims in the U.S. and Canada right now. So you might think that you're saving money, but really you're just putting a whole bunch of people in your organization on mental health disability leave. And what you did see from some of these large firms, these firms that you're talking about, their highest level people, their highest performing people are exiting the company. And so, yeah, it it sounds like this is really great for them, but they are losing a massive amount of wisdom and talent and, and, um, and innovative thinking inside their organization. So all of this downstream ends up being bad financially for organizations overall. What are some companies that are handling the hybrid transition in a, in a healthier way in your view? I know you've done some research on, on Hewlett Packard. You know, HP is doing a really, here's the thing I want to backtrack because HP has been doing this work for, a while. You know, they went into the pandemic with high resiliency because they were already doing a lot of upstream interventions. You know, they were thinking about, you know, more equitable paternity and maternity leave. So they didn't see this mass exodus of women. You know, they cared about care leave and family leave and had protections around that. So you didn't have to see that kind of struggle with, um, you know, with making choices about staying home and caring for your child or, or working. So there was these sort of fundamental burnout prevention, you know, mentality around their wellness that made them more, um, effective inside of the pandemic made customers, made their sort of their customers happy, but also their employees were, uh, had high trust scores, trust in leadership, and they felt like their employers, whether they got it right or wrong, had their best interests at heart. And so you saw less attrition within that organization, but they were doing things like, like I said, those fundamental sort of equity fairness pieces. They were also, you know, moved to a hybrid situation that didn't feel so jarring. Some companies like all of a sudden they're remote because they've, and they never had worked remote before and never even considered it, you know, a lot of financial institutions were, you know, insurance companies and others were really, you know, kind of hit um, hard by this transition. But you know, Hewlett Packard wasn't. And even now, as we go back, what we're seeing is they're doing things like, um, you know, listening to their employees, which was something they did in the pandemic too. They had more of this like "ask me anything" style conversation where senior leaders, C-level leaders, would go into these conversations every single day for months, and they would have their employees just ask their burning questions of them, you know, which created this certainty. And now as they're transitioning, they've offered a full hybrid mindset and their campuses, even they're thinking more around this idea of, 
This is not life on site. I'm going to give you meals to take home to your family because you've told us that that's more important than us doing your laundry for you on site and making you, you know, eat the chef's food here and coming home to your family at 10 o'clock at night. So this is that, you know, that shift that we need to think of And the most competitive companies I see and who I've seen like Unilever and others are taking on this mindset about listening, empathetic and actively listening to what their employees need and then figuring out how to make it mutually beneficial. You know, maybe you're listening to this, maybe you, you're having a little trouble getting out of bed, you might be feeling cynical, you're feeling burned out. Can't fix the whole problem in a final question of a of a podcast interview, but what's maybe one or two things you can do as an employee, uh, just as, as a worker, you're feeling a little burned out to make today a little bit better? You're right. It's it's a systemic issue with lots of root causes. It's not going to be solved overnight. Um, but there are some things that we as individuals can do. And there are certain individuals that are more at risk of burnout, those that have high levels of perfectionism, you know, those that um, kind of look at their work as their identity. They maybe self-describe as a workaholic. I mean, these are all things that are definitely going to lead to burnout. And one of the things that we have to recognize both as, as leaders and as individual employees is that we've been living in sort of this emergency state for a really long time. And by definition, emergencies are unexpected, right? So now we know what that, you know, what this is, it is still stressful in some environments. It's, you know, we have different kind of protocols around things, but still we have been living with this macro stress for a long time. And it's making us feel like everything is urgent. Every time we get an email, every time we get a request to do anything, any type of action that is work-related, and then it's trickling into our life too, we have to deal with it right away. And we have to ask ourselves, constantly, is this urgent or am I creating false urgencies around this? How do I create some boundaries around what is worth it? I created this schematic in my life, a priority um, sort of scale. And I say, you know, is this a deathbed regret if I don't do this thing? And, you know, sometimes it has to get as basic as Maslow hierarchy of needs, kind of basic level of understanding around what matters. And if we are putting false urgencies on things, we're also disconnecting from the things that make us well. Um, and so one of the, the most important things that we need to do is create margins, create space so that we can spend time on things that give us joy and pleasure, like spending time with our friends, you know, being around our family, having dinner with other people, seeing people eye to eye and actually going and having coffee with them in person and reconnecting to that part of our community. And all of those things, eventually, if we start to practice them in small micro kind of habits, we'll eventually start to feel better. Jennifer Moss, she's the author of The Burnout Epidemic. Thank you so much for your time. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill, thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. 